At the end of the last lecture, we saw that we could project the molecule in the form of a Newman projection and see the conformation from a particular angle, which I said would allow us to determine the energy of those conformations, certainly in a qualitative sense, first of all. Now, what I'm going to do is write out six conformations written in Newman projection formally, and these six are the limiting conformations. They represent maximum and minimum on an energy versus rotation diagram. And they are here written out. What's happened is we've taken the central bond and we've rotated it by 60 degrees each time. We've kept the front carbon the same, the methyl is still down, the hydrogen one to the right, one to the left, and we're rotating the central bond so that the back carbon goes round, the substituents on the back carbon goes round the clock, as you were. 60 degrees at a time. And we get these six Newman projection formulae for the conformational isomers that we produce by doing that. They're all in equilibrium, remember. Now when we look at those six, we see that they split into two different types. In the first, we have the substituents spread evenly around the face of the clock, the 360 degree arc. Each one is at a 60 degree arc from the other, counting all six substituents, that is, on both carbons. And that is called a staggered conformation. There are three of those staggered conformations from the six, because all the groups are staggered evenly around that 360 degree circle. In the second type, and there are three of those as well, what we find is that the front substituents on the front carbon, these get in the way of our view of the substituents at the back. They eclipse our view of the back substituents. And indeed, these are called the eclipsed conformations. Now, we can take out of those six, we can take out four, because two of them are the same, in fact. So we can take out four which have particular names. And we can represent them according to what is known as the dihedral angle, which is the angle in butane. It's the angle between the bond to one methyl at the back carbon round to the bond to the methyl on the front carbon, like that. And if you look at that, you see that the first one, a staggered conformation, has the two methyl groups right away from one another. The angle between the bonds to the methyl groups is 180 degrees, and that is called the anti-conformation. The next one is called the sin conformation. This is when the two methyl groups are actually right on top of one another. It's an eclipse conformation. And the, the angle between the two bonds is zero. And then we have an, a, what is known as a gauche conformation. That is a staggered conformation where the angle between the two methyl groups is 60 degrees. And finally, we have an angle between the two methyl groups, now an eclipse conformation, which is called the anticlinal conformation. Now, you won't see the anticlinal and the gauche very often, and I won't be mentioning them a lot in my talks. The two main, main ones, the very important ones, you'll see later on uh, throughout the course of lectures, are in fact the sin and the anti-conformations. But nevertheless, we need to, at the moment to look at all of these and to consider their different energies. And we're going to do that, first of all, in a qualitative sense, and then we'll look at it more quantitatively. What one finds is that 
we need to look at the eclipse consummations to understand what's going on. Let's take the sin confirmation. What we have there is we have severe repulsive forces between the methyl nuclei. The methyl groups are reasonably large. They are overlapping one another, as it were, looking down that bond. And there is a nucleus-nucleus repulsive force, which is destabilizing that conformation. Now you might say, well, the same is true of the hydrogens, because the hydrogens are also overlapping, but the hydrogens are quite small, and so the, the nucleus-nucleus repulsion between them is usually considered to be probably non-existent, or not non-existent, but very small, not, not, not important. But what else is destabilizing this conformation is the overlap of the bond electrons. The electrons in each of those bonds, that's a C-methyl to C-methyl, the CH and the CH and the CH and the CH, they're all overlapping, so we're getting additionally, in addition to the nucleus-nucleus repulsion between the methyl groups, we're also getting electron-electron, bond-electron, bond-electron repulsion in those three sets, three pairs of bonds. And so we can see that the syn conformation is certainly going to be a much higher energy, much less stable than the others. And indeed, we can write down qualitatively uh, two sets of energy orders, if you like. First of all, the eclipse conformations are always going to be more energetic than the staggered conformations. And then, in the syn, anti, anticlinal, and gauche, we can say that the syn, which is eclipse, is going to be more energetic than the anticlinal. Why do we say that? Well, the anticlinal, you'll see, we still have the electron-electron repulsion, but we don't have the methyl group, methyl group nucleus repulsion, because the methyl groups are now overlapping hydrogens rather than other methyl groups. So, although the, it's an eclipse conformation, therefore going to be high in energy, it's not going to be as high as, in hi as higher energy as the syn conformation. And then the anticlinal conformation is going to be higher energy than the gauche, where we have a staggered conformation. There's no or very little electron-electron repulsion. And the nucleus-nucleus repulsion is minimized by the fact that the methyls are fairly far apart. And then finally, the most stable conformation must be where we keep the biggest groups far apart, the methyl groups, far from one another. And that is the, the most stable of all the conformations. So qualitatively, we have these two orders. Eclipsed, greater than energy than staggered, and sin, greater than anticlinal, greater than gauche, greater than anti. Now let's put a few numbers onto that. For that we need to draw a graph. A graph of the energy, relative energy of these conformations, against the dihedral angle. And what we find is that when the dihedral angle is naught, here the sin conformation, the energy of that conformation is about 24 kilojoules per mole higher in energy than the anti. If we take the anti as a baseline point, it's about 24 kilojoules per mole higher. The gauche, which is a staggered, is the next in line, 60 degree dihedral angle, is fairly stable and is only 3 kilojoules per mole higher than the anti. So it's a fairly stable state then. And the anticlinal, which is in the clip state, is about 14 kilojoules per mole higher than the anti. So you can see why I said these are limiting conformations. The sin and the anticlinal are at the top of their peaks, and the gauche and the anti are at the bottom of their peaks. We can now use a formula 
which allows us to relate the difference in energies between various species and the equilibrium constant when they are in equilibrium, which will allow us to work out roughly in butane, because we're dealing with butane, remember, roughly how much of each of these conformations is present at room temperature in butane. And what we find is that if we feed the numbers into this equation, which is delta G equals minus RT logarithm, natural logarithm of K, the equilibrium constant, where R is the gas constant and T is the absolute temperature, we find that at room temperature, butane consists of about 80% of molecules in the anti-conformation, about 20% of molecules in the gauche conformation, and much less than 1% are in the syn and the anticlinal, the eclipsed conformations. Okay, that's all I want to say about conformations. We now move on to the reactions of alkanes. And before I discuss the major reaction of alkanes, we need at first to just talk a bit in generalities. It's quite common in organic chemistry to try and decide how a molecule reacts by looking at charges development, dipolar charges which develop in bonds in that molecule. Let's say we have a simple uh, a molecule AB, for example, with a bond between it, sigma bond. And let's say that B is more electronegative than A. Then what we find is that B attracts the electrons in that sigma bond towards it very slightly, but it generates a permanent dipole in that bond, delta negative in B and delta positive in A. And therefore, we can say, looking at this, we get a, a rule of thumb, really. We can say, well, what's most likely going to happen then is nucleophiles, which, remember, are usually negatively charged or have a pair of electrons, will go for the positively charged A. And electrophiles, which are usually positively charged or maybe have empty orbitals, will tend to go for the neg negatively charged B. So that's a general feeling one gets in, in, in general reactivity. Now let's try and apply that to the CH bonds in alkanes. Remember, there's nothing in alkanes but CH bonds. And what we find with alkanes is that the electronegativity of hydrogen and of carbon, the electronegativities of those two atoms, are roughly the same. And so there is very little charge build-up in a CH bond. And what that means, in essence, is that alkanes do not suffer nucleophilic attack. They do not suffer, generally, electrophilic attack. So what do they do? Well, they are fairly inert molecules, actually. But they do suffer attack from radicals. Radicals have a high propensity for abstracting hydrogens. They seem to love hydrogens. And of course, alkanes are just chock block full of hydrogens, CH bonds all over the place. So radical attack is a major attack on alkanes. And we can represent that by this general equation. We take a CH bond on our alkane. We have a radical R. It attacks and abstracts the hydrogen to generate an alcohol radical C dot there, plus RH. Now, we can actually describe... We've that what we've just done is describe a mechanism. Remember, I said the mechanism is just description of what happens in a reaction. And we can write a designation of that mechanism just as we can, for example, with an SM1 or an SN2, which you've probably done at A-level. This is a substitution reaction. We're substituting on hydrogen rather than on carbon. The alkyl radical 
or the R dot value was coming in, attacking hydrogen and displacing C dot. So it is a substitution, so we can put S down. The reaction is biomolecular because it involves two species in the rate determining step, that is the radical R dot and the alkane CH. And so we can put two down. And the reaction is homolytic, that is, the two electrons in the CH bond, one goes to the R dot to form the new RH bond, and one goes on to the carbon to form the carbon radical. They split unevenly, they don't both go in one way, one goes in one direction, one goes in the other, that's homolytic fission, and so this is SH2, where H stands for homolysis. So you can see it's quite similar to the SN2, but it's an SH2 reaction. Now let's think of an actual case of radical attack on an alkane. And the most common is when the radical is a halogen atom. So we're going to deal with the one major reaction of alkanes, which is free radical halogenation. Now if you take, and we'll, we'll describe it by looking at the reaction of methane and chlorine in the first instance. If you take methane and chlorine and mix them in the dark, nothing happens. If you then shine a light on that mixture, or if you heat it to about 300 degrees centigrade, a very, very vigorous reaction occurs, sometimes almost explosive. And that tells us, that experiment tells us, that the halogens themselves are not the reactive species, because otherwise the halogen would react, the chlorine would react with the methane in the dark. But they need to be converted to something by the light or by the heat. And of course what happens is the light or the heat splits the halogen atom, the halogen molecule rather, into two halogen atoms, which are halogen radicals effectively. And this, because it starts the reaction off, is called the initiation step in this overall mechanism. Now what happens is the halogen radical comes along and does what we did up there with our R dot radical. It abstracts a hydrogen to form HX, and produces a carbon radical here. The carbon radical now attacks molecular halogen. There's still molecular halogen there. We only need to generate a small amount of the X radical, the chlorine radical, as you'll see in a minute, to get the reaction to go. So the, the radical radical attacks the halogen, the molecular halogen, again in an SH2 mechanism. You can work that out yourself if you look at the arrows. You can see it's an SH2 mechanism to give the alcohol halide product, the thing we're after at the end of the day, and regenerates, and this is the important point, it regenerates the halogen radical. These steps, because they essentially propagate the reaction, because the halogen radical is regenerated, it goes back into the first step and abstracts hydrogen, and then we do the second step, we go back to the first, the second, and so on. These are called the propagation steps. And because the whole sequence is really a chain of these propagation steps going on, this is called a free radical chain reaction. Now, there are free radical reactions which are not chain reactions. Those are dealt with later on in your career. But at the moment, this is the most common, or one of the most common uh, radical reactions, a free radical chain reaction. So we build up our alcohol halide, and we deplete ourselves in our alkane, or methane, if we're dealing with methyl, methane. And at the end of the reaction, we've no, got, no longer got any more methane left, but we've still got a few radicals hanging around. And so what happens is the radicals start to recombine together. We can either get two halogen atoms 
combining back together to form the halogen molecule. Or we can get two alkyl radicals, which are formed in the propagation step, to combine back to give a bigger alkane, essentially a, almost like a dimer. <coughs> or we can get more of the product formed by an alkyl radical and a halogen radical combining to give the alkyl halide. And these three together are known as the termination steps. So that, in essence, is the free radical uh, halogenation mechanism. All those steps, initiation, propagation, and termination. And what we're going to do now is look at various aspects of this, mainly the difference between the halogens, and then secondly, the difference between the CH bonds towards halogenation. Let's look first of all then at the difference, a comparison of the halogens in this reaction. If you mix fluorine with almost any other organic molecule, or any mo organic molecule, or not any other organic molecule, any organic molecule, what happens is you tend to get an explosion. Fluorine is incredibly reactive. And indeed, it's surprised that Moisson and his students who discovered fluorine in the early part, late part of the last century actually survived the event. It's a very, very reactive element. As we've seen, if you mix chlorine with an alkane in the presence of an, a light or heat, again, you get a very vigorous reaction, which can be, in some cases, almost explosive. If you mix bromine with alkane, the reaction just peters along and goes very slowly and produces the product. And if you mix iodine with an alkane, nothing happens. How do we explain this disparate reactivity? Why are they so different? We can do that by looking at the bonds made and the bonds broken in the two propagation steps. Because remember, the initiation step is done once and then it's over. We don't need it again. It's just there to generate the initial radical. The termination steps don't occur until right at the end of the reaction. So they don't play a role in what's going on in the reaction itself. It's the propagation steps which are important. And we see that in the propagation steps, the first one of these, we break a CH bond and we make an HX bond. We, in the second step, we break an XX bond and we make a CX bond. And if you look at this, this handout, which you have before you, which gives the energies of those bonds, and if we just sum up the energies of those bonds and work out the total energy we're going to get out at the end of the day, we can quite clearly see why some reactions work explosively and the others don't go at all. With fluorine, the XX bond, the fluorine-fluorine bond, is almost as weak as an iodine-iodine bond, 155 kJ per mole versus 150. It's a very weak bond, in fact. And yet we get, at the end of the day, a very strong bond, HF and CF, two very strong bonds. And overall, we end up with some over 400 kJ per mole exotherm from that reaction, and therefore, it's going to occur very, very readily. With iodine, on the other hand, although we have a weak iodine-iodine bond, the carbon-iodine bond and the HI bond are not very strong at all. And so when you add up again the energy, you find you end up 53 kilojoules per mole in deficit. It's an endothermic reaction. You can't get it to go unless you add heat to it. Okay, what we've looked at this lecture then is we looked at conformations in terms of numeral projection formula and the energies of conformations. We looked at ways of presenting or working out the, the percentages of conformations in, in, a, in a compound at room temperature. We started looking at the reactivity of alkanes, in particular the mechanism of free radical halogenation and a comparison of the halogens.